What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is the Book Riot Podcast. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I am not here with Rebecca Shinsky tonight. I am here with Trisha Brown and Jess Pride, hosts of our One Women When in Romance podcast, and this is coming out in sort of a Valentine-ish window. We do some recs. I'm going to ask them for some recommendation of what's what's out there in the world of romance. If you're dipping your toes in, or you want to give it a shot, but I am as interested in anything in two people who follow the genre closely. They know the tropes. They know the discourse. They know the titles. They know the authors. And what's going on in the world of romance. So I, I, we were talking just a little bit before we got started. And if you haven't been following discourse around books for 10 years online, like we here have, you may not know sort of the evolution of what romance was, how it was considered, how it's changed both in terms of market size and readership, but also attitudes towards it. So I guess, what was it like to be a romance fan 10 years ago Trisha versus what it's like to be a romance fan now. So it's so interesting that you asked that. Um, I only started reading romance maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Okay, so, uh, I And yeah, Jess will tell you her origin story too, I'm sure. But I, um, I was actually looking for something to read at the gym and trashy magazines were getting too expensive. So I went on to my uh, e-reader to try to figure out what can I read? Like what sort of genre fiction can I read that will keep my attention off of the elliptical machine? Um, and I ended up downloading a couple of romance books for the first time. And I started to read them and I was so mad because I was like, there was this whole genre out there of these smart, funny books written by smart, funny, sometimes dramatic, whatever, <laughs> uh, authors. <laughs> these like feminist stories about women who are actually the center of the story and who get a happy ending. Like they don't get murdered. Right. They don't get, you know, like they're not somebody's supporting character. I, I had just read, um, Gosh, what was that book? The one that Jason Bateman was in the movie. The, this is where I leave you. Yes, the Jonathan the, Chopper novel. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I had just read that. And I was like, I thought those were the books that I had to be reading. But there's actually this entire universe <laughs> of books that are um, about women, mostly. I mean, you know, women and marginalized people, right? About women, about queer characters. Um, and I, I just, I felt like someone had been pulling one over on me for like decades. And I, um, I think it's so interesting to see now that we have these conversations. Cause at that point I was in, you know, I went to Book Riot. Of course I went to Smart Bitches Trashy Books. Like there's, there were a handful of places you could go to get romance recs. Now you can go to Entertainment Weekly. You can go to the New York Times. You can go to all those places. Um, so to me, it feels like it's just night and day difference. But like I said, Jess, you've been reading for a lot longer than I have in this genre. I don't know if it feels as, as stark to you. 
It's definitely a huge difference. Um, I am the the other kind of romance reader, the one who read over my mom's shoulder mm. when I didn't even know half of the words <laughs> and started picking them up um, a little too early in my two-digit age. Um, so I, I have sort of watched it be this huge secret that you had to keep, you know, especially, you know, going to school, you didn't take those books with you to school to, to, to be reading on your downtime and your lunchtime. You took different books to school and you kept the others hidden under your bed or at least in a closet. Um, and now like, like Trisha was saying, you know, people are talking about them in the major news sites, um, in the New York Times. They're talking about them publicly on social media. There are huge groups of people who share, like, I just joined this giant Facebook group that is all Black women who mm. are readers or trying to get into reading, and they're all talking about romance novels. Mm. And it's just such a huge difference. And I think part of it is the fact that um, there's marketing involved, right? Yeah. But there's also sort of this expansion of understanding of what romance is and this expansion of who's writing it. You know, Trisha talked about marginalized people. There are more people from underrepresented groups and historically excluded groups who are able to tell their stories in the ways that they want. They want. And of course, they're self-publishing. Yeah. There's always going to be those people who either couldn't make it through the gatekeepers or decided not to even bother dealing with the gatekeepers. Um, and we're just getting so many more stories. And then of course there's the people who are looking for something happy to read yeah. that know they have a contractual agreement that they will get a happy ending out of these books mm -hmm. that we might not get from from literary fiction we might not get well we should get from things like mysteries like a satisfying ending but sometimes we don't especially thrillers <laughs> um, but yeah there's definitely sort of been this huge outpouring of interest in romance especially in the pandemic years yeah. and um yeah it's it's a huge difference from when i first started reading and so there's a, there's a couple of things we used to write about on Book Riot that we don't have to write about anymore, and I think all for good ways. And I can't. And some of it's been slower, and some of it's faster. What audiobooks are real books, mm -hmm. you know? E-reading is e-books. Reading romance is reading real books. YA is worth taking seriously in its own way, and we don't hear much of that anymore. I mean, there's pockets here and there, but I was in Barnes and Noble with my family the other mm -hmm. day, and just. I haven't I don't go to that many physical bookstores honestly and to see the commercial romance table and how many titles there were I think mm -hmm. if I had walked if you had sort of um Marty McFly'd me into the future from 2010 into that Barnes and Noble I wouldn't have known what TikTok was and I want to come back to that in a second of course the TikTok favorites but the prominence of commercial romance and and by commercial I mean Mass mar mainstream rom the mainstreamification of romance. I think that might be mm -hmm. the single biggest thing I would notice going into a bookstore. Um, mm -hmm. And so, is your sense of it? It's been gradual, gradual. Have been there's some landmark 
moments or books or revelations, Tricia, that, you know, you can point to and say that felt like a change or this felt like a change? Yeah, I think e-readers was a huge, it was the first really big shift. I think that made a huge difference. I think just reference the pandemic. Yeah. I think that is where just anecdotally, um, many of the friends that I had who were capital N, not romance readers, sort of came into it. I will tell you, I um, spent most of 2019 traveling around the U.S. and I went to many, many bookstores. I would say maybe a third of them had a romance section. I went to so many bookstores that had a mystery section, that had a thriller section, that had a sci-fi section. And I would go to them and say, I noticed you have all these genre sections. Why don't you have a romance section? And they'd say, oh, well, there's not, we're not really that kind of store. We don't really have that kind of interest. And I think once, I think the difference is people started to see romance makes money. You know, you see it at Walmart, you see it at Target, you see it at Costco. And so I think, I think the beginning of the change was the shift was the fact that e-readers existed. Right. And so people, when they didn't want to necessarily be seen reading romance, you know, I'd be reading on the subway in DC and nobody would have any idea what I was reading. And now we're seeing, I think, a shift into Jess and I actually just talked on our last one romance episode about covers and how is getting a lot more difficult to tell what is romance and what is not yeah. based on covers. But I think I so I think it's a lot of um different factors. But I think, you know, you're seeing I think that I do think the pandemic was really really big. People needed something that then those are just referenced it earlier. The two main rules of romance are that it has to focus on a romantic relationship of some kind, mm-hmm. often two people, not always. And it has to have an emotionally satisfying ending or an HEA, a happy ever after, as we sometimes talk about. And so people needed to know going into the books that they were reading that they were going to be okay at the end, right? When everything else didn't feel okay, they needed to know in romance that they were going to be okay. Today's episode is brought to you by National Geographic Books. The Cave is the incredible memoir of Imani Balur, a young doctor and activist who ran an underground hospital in Damascus, humanizing the enduring crisis in Syria. The only woman to have ever run a wartime hospital in Syria, she saved many from the atrocities of war while having to face the patriarchal conservatism around her. Amani Balur is a game changer. Listen, she will be remembered as one of history's greatest. She's a passionately committed humanitarian, and she is determined to help others escape the horrors that she survived. Make sure to pick up the memoir, The Cave by Amani Balur and Rania Abuzaid for a memoir that expands on the 2019 Oscar-nominated film by the same name, which documents her experience running the hospital, shielding children from horrific sarin attack, losing colleagues, trying to employ more women in the hospital, and eventually leaving and becoming a refugee. So make sure to read about this amazing woman. And thanks again to National Geographic Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by William Morrow. I'll be dead in three months. Come tell my story. Imagine someone told you that. That's what Sebastian Trapp, a reclusive mystery novelist, told to his longtime correspondent Nikki Hunter, an expert in detective fiction. So with only a few months left to live, Trapp invites Nikki to his spectacular San Francisco mansion to help draft his life story, living alongside his beautiful second wife, Diana, his wayward nephew, Freddie, and his protective daughter, Madeline. But soon, Nikki finds herself caught in an irresistible case of real-life detective fever. Make sure to pick up End of Story by New York Times bestselling author A.J. Finn for a book that gives knives out, that gives White Lotus. 
You'll like this if you like books by Lucy Foley, Nita Prose, and others. So make sure to pick it up, check it out, and thanks again to William Morrow for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by A Tempest of Tea by Hafsa Faisal. So Arthur Casimir is a criminal mastermind and collector of secrets. Her prestigious tea room transforms into an illegal bloodhouse by night, because obviously it does. It caters to the vampires feared by society, but when her establishment is threatened, she has to make a deal with an alluring adversary. So Arthi hatches a plan to infiltrate the sinister, glittering vampire society known as the Ethereum, but not everyone in her ragtag crew is on her side. And as the truth behind the heist unfolds, Arthi finds herself in the midst of a conspiracy that will threaten the world as she knows it. So this is the highly anticipated next project from the author of We Hunt the Flame. It's got a fierce female lead. The story is fun and fast paced while also exploring significant themes like colonialism, prejudice, betrayal, and self-acceptance. I mean, it's got vampires and heists. Make sure to check it out, get into it, and thanks again to A Tempest of Tea by Hafsa Faisal for sponsoring this episode. Jess, how much different is it now? I mean, the books you were not supposed to be reading at 10, 11, 12, would you, do you think that that version of you, if they were a young reader now, would they even have any kind of sense that they weren't supposed to be reading it? Because I, I think about my kids and their mm -hmm. friends are reading commercial romance I don't even know they call. I don't know if they know to call them romance or think about that. But I wonder if that era is if things have changed sort of permanently in how people think about romance and it being mainstream, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I think that there is definitely a different um, kind of feel of it than than there was in that time and if if i was just you know my 11 year old self wandering through bookstores with you know the permission right. to be picking up whatever i wanted as long as i could afford it um with with my you know monthly allowance or whatever then i would probably pick up some of those really similar things because i mean I personally have always loved a love story. Those those are what drew me in. And no matter who the people were, I wanted to read those those kinds of stories, which is why I kept ending up with my mother's mm. uh mass market Jude Devereux novels in, in the in the mid-90s. Um but especially now, if I was if I was 11 years old and walked into Barnes and Noble, like you were mentioning, that front table has everything that I want. Um, and I've seen people talk about it. I've seen the people that I follow on social media talk about it. Um, we, you know, we talked about the pandemic, but we didn't talk about how, um, even just Bookstagram really influenced, um, having the change in, the visuals of books like i remember when the wedding date came out and in what was that trisha 2018 i think it was i think it was yeah 2018 sounds right yep well, Same it seems year longer as, um, ago than that but that's motion. six years ago but that's 2018 feels like the, the nixon administration at this point that's that's wild <laughs> it really does <laughs> i remember when that came out and that was like such a different thing like that was the first 
true like Uh romance trade paperback that I remembered seeing, um, even though in the 2010s and uh, early 2000s, we had, um, you know, what they what they liked to call chick lit, um, which were often trade paperbacks, Bridget Jones's diary, other Helen Fielding, like those those authors who wrote what we would probably today put in the romance section um totally but yeah just like that change in these books that had to be a certain have a certain look so that they could stand out on instagram or in social media um i think that would have really drawn young me in Mm -hmm. uh aesthetically and then just having so many of them to be able to read instead of having to read the same seven over and over again (laughs) the wedding date's a really good example because i read that because i was seeing it all over the place and i don't know what this says about me i i didn't even know to know to to wonder if it was capital r romance i just saw people writing Mm -hmm. about it and I like rom-coms and that's a subgenre of romance. And I really liked that. And the, the other books I liked as well. I don't know that much about the marketing and patching of that book. Is that your all's understanding that it was, we want to make sure this looks good on Instagram is, is, is as simple as that. I don't, I think that another thing that just said is actually more important and that that was one of the, so the kiss quotient by Helen oh, Wong yeah. also came out that right. year. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, I remember actually sitting with a rep at Berkeley in like the fall of 2017. And she was talking to me about these books that they were excited about. And those were two of the three. Um, and I think one of the major differences is that that's when trade paperback is when that started the romance mm-hmm. being published in trade paperback, as opposed to mass market paperback. So those little tiny ones that you would see at a grocery store or see in wherever. And it was the exception at that time. And now if you looked at, you know, say, I mean, the Goodreads list is trash in a lot of ways, but like if you looked at the Goodreads best of romance list for the last several years, you would be hard pressed to find, well, last two or three years anyway, hard pressed to find a mass market paperback on that list. It's all trade Mm -hmm. paperback. And so I think it's, maybe it's partly about Instagram Mm. or TikTok or social media, Jeff, but I think a lot of it is also what it looks like in the store. Because I'm guessing that if you as a reader had seen a different cover and a different style of publishing, if you'd seen a mass market paperback, you probably would have known immediately that it was a capital R romance. There was, there was some, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure this happens. There was a book I saw and I can't remember the title. You guys probably know. I think it's a football related title. And I guess the old cover was a, a guy with a shirt off and sick abs and the other one was a cartoon of a football, pl- you know, an illustration of a football player and a cheerleader or another woman. Same book, packaged completely differently. And the approach people have is completely different. I guess that leads me to a question I hadn't thought about before. And there may not be anything interesting here. Is there anything, Jess, you miss about the old days of romance? What, what has been, a lot has been gained, I th- it feels like, in the world of romance in a lot of ways. It, what's, is there anything you miss about, you know, 10, 15 years ago when you were reading romance or in the romance community? You know, you're right. There there have been a lot of gains. And it's interesting you mentioned that that particular cover. Um, I don't think I hugely miss the half-naked torsos, <laughs> but I do sort of miss the artistry of the clinch cover. Yeah. And it's not gone. We still have, especially in historical romance, those mass markets that have those beautiful um, embraces um, with the flowing dresses and the the 
billowing poet shirt and all of that stuff. Um, but I do think that being able to sort of spread them out and see all of them all the time and to be able to identify exactly what that was like like trisha was saying you saw a math market you knew it was capital r romance um but just because we see so many covers now because most of the things that we see are on the internet instead of in a physical bookstore Mm. i sort of miss seeing all of those those gorgeous painted covers um whether or not Fabio Lanzoni was on the on they did them, seem or, more or, human, right? I mean, I guess they 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 were more realistic images. I don't know. Some mm-hmm. of them, I think, were probably you guys would know, but some of them are photographs. Some of them may even paintings or illustrations of some kind. But as much as they are stylized, they did seem more human as opposed to these representations that we get now. And again, I you know people like different things, um, but that's there. Let's. let's I will say too. Ahead. I think one of the challenges with that is that. Um, so first of all, the uh, book you're thinking of is a book called The Perfect Play by J.C. Yes, Burton, which go. is one of the first um, sort of like just male ab, like heterosexual female gaze focused covers, okay. which is kind of an interesting, interesting. thing that um, I think we sort of lost. Um, but I think one of the challenges with when we started to move, particularly in the early days of moving to more illustrated covers, is that there are books that illustrated covers people thought meant romantic comedy. Right. And so you yeah. think, okay, I'm picking up a romantic comedy. And then you pick up a book by like someone like Sonali Dev who writes wonderful, extraordinary dramatic romance. It is not comedic. Her books have a tremendous amount of drama and trauma and soapy, all kinds of things. And so then they end up going on, people go on Goodreads and they say, this was supposed to be a rom-com, right. you know, two and a half stars, even though the book is actually great for what it's meant to be. It mm-hmm. gets really difficult for people to figure out sort of what they're picking up. Uh, and I yeah. think- I think there are pluses and minuses to all of this, but one of the challenges Jess and I actually just on our show talked about um, someone whose grandparents who were buying for their 11-year-old daughter, they went to the youth book section in Walmart, uh, picked out a book, and it just happened to be that this person who was writing in said, I was sitting there, I saw them unwrap this book that I know is a romance. I grabbed it and was like, this is not 11-year-old reading material. But, you know, whoever's buying books at Walmart doesn't necessarily, or Target or Costco, you know, I'm not trying to, right. um, any any of these places that don't necessarily have genre-specific book buyers, they're buying the book. It looks like YA, so they stick it in the youth section and not necessarily knowing that there are some pretty graphic sex scenes in there. I guess, yeah, it makes sense that, that the mainstream book buyer is now more accessible to a romance author or romance imprint means there's a a rush to be generally appealing and what that loses a little bit is some of the specificity and signaling you get. You know, if you get a half-naked guy on the cover, you kind of know what you're going to be in for. If they're all illustrated people with sweaters and lattes, you don't know what spice level you're going to get. You don't know the drama. Mm-hmm. Is it a rom-com? Is it cont- I mean, it's probably contemporary if they're drinking lattes, though, you know, fantasy cozy. Yeah, you never know. You never know. Yeah. Um, so a lot of that kind of like in-group signaling about the packaging and the imprint and this particular thing Um Goes away. While I'm talking about spiciness, um, I saw it was one of the topics you talked about not too long ago, and I think it's one in why there's a whole range, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I, that's interesting if that's one thing. But what are some of the, if not hot button issues in in sort of today's romance community, reading and publishing? What is still to be figured out? What are we still working on? What do we still want to see more of? What are still people trying to understand about what romance is and what it can be? I think one one of the things that 
I see a lot in conversation, um, especially with new readers or with people who are very particular, um, is, is this range of spice there. I've seen multiple conversations about how if it doesn't have sex, it's not really romance. Like I came to these books for the smut (laughs) and smut, smut spoken, uh, Positively. With love and embrace, um, uh, figuratively and metaphorically, I suppose. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> yes, um, and uh, there are some spectacular books that are super sensual, have absolutely no sexual content in them. Those are still romance mm-hmm. novels because the love story does not need to have the sexual activity. Of course, the love story can also be one that is half sex, <laughs> and it really depends on the way that the storyteller has put it together. But that conversation seems to keep coming up in part because of the way that some people have marketed, not not specifically like marketing in publishing, but like people spoken word sharing their stories have said, oh, look, I've got I've got the good sex for you. Um, Mm -hmm. Here's some here's some really spicy books for you. Um, and that's what a romance novel is. Romance is the spice when really anything with, like Trisha said, a central romance or a central romantic romantic arc, um, potentially with other plot things in it and uh, an emotionally satisfactory ending, the, that's what a romance is. So it's really interesting to watch, especially newer readers who talk about mm spice level as the only right. requirement for really knowing if a romance is good. So do you think that's because as the mainstreamification has happened, there's just so many more readers coming to it and trying to navigate it? Is that is that why? Or or was this kind of a conversation that's been going on like for a while in romance about how much there should be or how do you even know based on the book you're picking up what you're kind of in for? Because like one of the appeals of the happy ending, happy uh, ever after, happy for now is you get that. But that is, like you say, Jess, no contract about the level of sex in it, right? And you maybe would want some indication if that's what you want or not. Was that like that in the old days or like 10 years ago, Tricia, where people having these conversations about how much is right or how do you know or, you know, making your list or the authors you go to if you want this or that? I think it's um, I think it's some of that, right? It's some of us trying to still navigate how how romance fits all of its different new readers. I think some of it is related to the inclusion aspects that romance is still really struggling with um, because there is a lot more, you know, Jess and I did a recommendation. Actually, I think we did like three recommendation request episodes at the end of December. And one of the things that we got asked about over and over and over again was um, characters who are either um, asexual, demisexual, just sort of anywhere on that level of, you know, sexuality, some readers just don't prefer to read about it. Some readers, that is why they're there. Like they're just into it. And so I think some of it is people sort of figuring out how to find the romance that sort of fits them. Um, I also think that inclusion in general is one of the things that romance is still really sorting out. I think we're in a better Mm -hmm. place than we were when we started the podcast. But I think, you know, when it comes to things like disability rep, um, all different races, ethnicities, cultures, you know, we we're getting closer, but we're, there's still a, a long ways to go. And I think, you know, in terms of sexuality, that certainly is a part of it as well. Mm. There's a lot more, 
you know, queer couplings or queer relationships on the page than maybe there were in mainstream romance five or 10 years ago. But, you know, one of my favorite books of last year was a book called Role Playing, where one of a 50 year old character is sort of figuring out his demisexuality, you know, like, so it's, I think it's, they're conversations that were happening, but they almost weren't as relevant hmm. 10 years ago because people didn't understand in a bad way, right? right? right because right. people didn't understand the the diversity of what romance really could be. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's always one of the challenges when you have a, well, a fairly well-divined cultural whatever is that it can calcify, right? And people can try to gatekeep mm-hmm. and enforce and not realize that that's just an entry point rather than the end, right? That it has to be that way. Um, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. This week, of course, we got a Sarah J. Moss book comes out. Uh, Romanticy is the portmanteau of the moment um, taking over mm-hmm. even in the rooms that I'm in, um, in publishing where it historically has not romance come up very often in, you know, all, all the imprints I talked to in the fall in New York. People are either interested in hearing what I thought about romanticy. I'm not a huge romanticy reader. I've done just enough so I'm not an idiot when I talk about this stuff, though I'm, I'm not an expert. <laughs> How has romanticy been incorporated, accepted by, or otherwise related to the romance community? I don't have a sense of this. Did it come out of the romance com- community? Did it come into it from fantasy? Does it come from fan fiction? What's your sense of the relationship between romanticy, romance, genre, and these, you know, titanic series that we apparently have now? Jess, is that, I know, do you, do, do you think of Moss as being the first romanticy? Or what's your sense of when that, even if we didn't have that word, these sort of big fantasy series entering the discourse in a real way? I think she definitely had a key in that. There's always been sort of this, um this merging of romance readers and fantasy readers who were looking for similar things like i read a lot of fantasy when i was younger um a lot of what what in the early 2000s we called women's fantasy um Wait, that so was really an example of that I, I couldn't think of a title off the top of my head but what would be a good example of that I read a lot of Jennifer Roberson okay. in in the in the early 2000s and she wrote what would be categorized as romantic right. now a big sweeping story each book had a different couple okay. um and you know there was a, a huge world building all of this stuff yeah. um and I think she's one that um people should really harken back to um but you know, Melanie Ron, even uh, Jacqueline Carey mm. are people who wrote what people, what romance readers were attracted to. Um, and now we found something where we're not just getting little bits of <laughs> romance in our fantasy. We're actually getting a full romance arc in a fantasy setting. And I think Sarah J. Moss was huge with that, Jennifer Armand Trout. Um, and then of course Rebecca Yaros with Fourth Wing and Iron Flame. I have like that came out of nowhere. Like if you weren't watching the explosion on TikTok, it just sort of was there one day. Um and it I I got this um graphic about the most checked out books 
in libraries in 2023. And like the whole last third of the year was just fourth wing. It might come down from first if a new book came out, but then it would just pop right back up. Um, And I think there's something about having this huge world building and this, this sort of epic story, but still being able to read the romance. And I think um, that is something that draws a lot of people in and um, it's not, it's not all devastatingly depressing. Mm-hmm. It's there's, there's something to look forward to at the end. And you know that it's going to actually provide you with the satisfactory ending. Maybe not at the end of the first book. You might have to wait for the, the end of the whole series, but. Well, you, that, you're, that you're act, still you guaranteed that, that. Act three books long. You can sell a lot of copies. <laughs> Going that way. I'd also be super interested in knowing how many of the Sarah J. Moss readers consider themselves romance. Well, readers. that's what I was. I, I guess mm-hmm. I was sort of circling around that kind of a question. It, to some degree, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, they are romances in a particular way. And one thing I was saying in those meetings, I've said to some other people, is like, you guys won't be surprised by this at all. I was speaking for maybe um, big publishing in ways like, when are we going to be stop surprising about these phenomenons that appeal to women? Whether it's Fifty Shades of Grey or Twilight, or Colleen Hoover, or Sarah J. Moss, or Rebecca Yaros. Like, one of these comes up, like, oh my God, I can't believe this is so popular. But then you boil it down, it's like a love story with some interesting characters in a cool setting that people can get lost in and trust at the end. They're going to be crying happy tears. Are they that different? Are they that different over time? I mean, I think that question is uh, the answer to the question of when are we going to stop being surprised is at least if you look at Hollywood, never. Never. Right. Right. Because like, <laughs> look at Bridesmaids, right? Yeah. Look at Barbie. Look at all of these sort of um, female centric stories. And again, we have a long ways to go in making sure that they are yes. female centric of all races, all genders, all sexualities, right? Like just marginalized people in general, just non male centric, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and Again, everyone is just astonished when Barbie is the top grossing film of the year. Like who and mm-hmm. you know, I Emily Henry is out there and mm-hmm. I'm not gonna get into Colleen Hoover because I think a lot of what she writes is mistaken for romance, but actually isn't right. romance. Um, but I, I think it's the answer to the question of when are people gonna stop being surprised? I don't know, Jeff. I feel like we might be doing a tenth anniversary discussion of this episode and still I'm gonna be try. In you know what Trisha I'm gonna try not <laughs> to be surprised the next time one of these happens and it looks it just looks like something I haven't seen before I'm mm-hmm. not gonna look at Publishers Weekly and see Iron Flame at the top and be like what the hell is this I'm gonna be like well my prior should be it's probably a story that involves a love story that a bunch of women are buying maybe mostly women but other people too are identifying differently that has a happy ending and some stuff that goes on in the middle that's that's probably yeah. what it is. It was Colleen Hoover, yeah. and it mm-hmm. was a bunch of stuff um, before that. I do want to talk about social media, especially short-form social video. This is not something – I am not a native of it. I don't actually know how you, you're all's relationship to it, but I know since you cover the genre, you are keyed into what's going on there and the pros and cons. How, what even to say about book talk? What even to say about bookstagram as it relates to the rise of romance? Is there any even anything? Is is there anything even more interesting to say that's been a huge flipping deal? I mean, can it be more specific than that, or is it is it that simple? Jess, I'm gonna hand this one off to you. 
Ellie's sister. <laughs> it's been such a huge deal. And, you know, I was, I was one of those reluctant people. It took me, you know, a friend showing me a guy singing telegrams or something <laughs> to finally get on yeah. and then realizing that there was already sort of this whole community yeah. built out um who were reading books and talking about them and really excited about them um and we can say that the algorithm you know takes books especially by white women and puts them in people's faces um but it you know it has made a huge impact um on if you just look at the last couple of years bloom books uh with source books yeah. its whole business model is books that have been made popular on social media that are uh independently published bringing them in house reprinting them giving them distribution rights and uh, Avon is doing it and um Harlequin might be doing it you know all of these all of these publishers that are known for building up um strong uh bills of sale yeah. as it were are are finding these books and making making them available across the world um and i think just you know, everybody's talking about having your own personal um, marketing thing for authors, but it's really the this new version of word of mouth. Um, you make something pretty, you pull out a few quotes, or you just screech about it a little bit, and people will be interested. Um, and they they don't want to be marketed to. They they want this sort of uh, organic selling to them from mm. people who they consider their friends and there's this whole influencer culture that i don't understand so i'm not going to try to speak um me either from a point of view of but um i feel like even if you're you know if your following isn't that big one video about something will send it viral across across the entirety of all of the platforms that you can cross post to. Um, and that can shoot one book skyrocketing. Like if we look at a, a song of Achilles a few years ago, like that just came out of nowhere. It's, it seems like it comes out of nowhere, but there's, there's some spiral that's happening. And just let me ask you this though, because I wonder, so one of the authors, it, for folks who really know nothing about romance, this is probably new to them, but Beverly Jenkins is maybe the most important romance author, certainly of the last two decades, maybe ever. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Extraordinary. Just absolutely. We'll talk about maybe we'll give you a couple of titles yeah, yeah, to yeah. start with. Um, but she writes um, mostly historic U.S. romance focused on primarily black characters, um, other characters of color. She did the, the amount of research that she does. It's anyway, you can listen to our podcast if you want to hear more about mm -hmm. Beverly Jenkins, but just, I guess my question for you is, do you think in this environment, Beverly Jenkins, who has been at this for 30 years, do you think she gets picked up? Like if, if she was not an established author with an established publisher, which is Avon, do you think she gets picked up in an era of TikTok, of book talk, of bookstagram? I think it would be hard. 
But I think that one person who picks up the trade paperback version or the um, the hardcover version of Indigo and yells about it a little bit, slaps it, says, this book, this book, this book. I think she she might get a, a little bit of a bump yeah. in in this kind of this kind of society. I think I just worry about what I feel like you know for as much as ice planet barbarians or like whatever sort of like <laughs> bizarre romances initially were getting highlighted on on social media, I feel like we sort of now reverted to mm. the less mm-hmm. interesting less um kind of outside the mainstream stuff that maybe actually is even better than the mainstream, but doesn't get the kind of attention, you know? Yeah. Um, I worry that we're kind of like reverting to the most boring books that are out there. And I, I will, I will confess, I have confessed this on the one in romance podcast. I will confess it here. I have never been able to finish an Emily Henry book. I'm sure the books are wonderful. I'm sure they're great. They've connected with a lot of people. And I think that's fantastic. And also I don't I don't need a recommendation for Emily Henry. I need a recommendation for Kathy Yardley. I need a recommendation for Beverly Jenkins or Alyssa Cole or Rebecca Weatherspoon. Um and I I just I worry that social media is taking us to a place that is less interesting, frankly. I mean Yeah. I I think it's almost certainly the case. I mean, I'm working on a piece for for Book Riot for the deep dive about that that includes a little bit of like if 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 anything, hmm, let me put it differently. If the end cap at Target is the goal, right, and that is the and that is what both people want to get put there, and also they want to see on the for you page of TikTok, and mm-hmm. that's gonna have. There's gonna be a certain echo chamber reification. All the work that people, the industry have done, that authors have done advocates have done over the last certainly the 12 years we've been doing doing book riot you look at the top 25 best-selling books of the year and there's maybe one not still non one non-white person still still Mm -hmm. we're not minting the 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 black emily henry right now we're not minting the asian stephen king we're not minting the um ace danielle Steele. it looks a lot Mm -hmm. like the same books the same kinds of stories, let me put it that way, if not the same books, yeah. we would have seen be the bestsellers of, of 20, 2008. And the algorithm is a reification machine. And if it's not mm-hmm. going to do anything but reify the same biases and preferences or whatever you want to call them that are already there. I don't I think that's an, an unbelievable question. I just don't think I don't know. I mean, I interviewed Beverly Jenkins for Reading Lives a million years ago. She's one of the most interesting people I've ever talked to. It's hard to imagine mm-hmm. that now because you just look where it, where would she go on those shelves? I don't know. I don't know. And I think that's the thing that's such a bummer is that for a while, if you looked at like, I would say 2019, 2020, mm. 2021, you did start to see stuff like, again, the plenty you could say about the book riot, or I'm sorry, <laughs> the book riot best of list is fantastic. The Goodreads <laughs> yes. best of list is best. <laughs> but for a while, it was getting to the point where instead of seeing one or zero yeah. authors of color, queer authors on the best of list, you started to actually see, you know, um, Red, White, and Royal Blue, One Last Stop, like yeah. a lot of um, these different books. And boy, if you looked at that list again in 2022, 2023, we're just back where we Eat were. Colleen Hoover titles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. so I don't know, I guess, I don't know what the few, I don't know, I guess, Jess, maybe it sounds like you may be of the three of us, our resident expert here on your sense of like the, the, the <laughs> book talk, romance talk, whatever you want to call it, you know, throw them all in together. Are we still growing? Are we plateauing? Are we, is there any end in sight for this? Like what's your spidey sense of the life cycle of TikTok's um, influence? I think it's somewhere between the growth and plateau part. You know, people, some people are kind of learning that if they want to see different things, they have to actually work to make their algorithm different. And there are some people who are working at that and who are, who are making their own influence change Mm. other people's influence. Um, But I think because of the fact that the algorithm really shows you what you want to see and the way that people are right now, Rebecca Yaros is what they want to see. Colleen Hoover is what they want to see. Sarah J. Moss is what they want to see. Then there isn't really going to be any change from that. It's swimming upstream, Uh, man, against a river that is so mm -hmm. much bigger than you are. It seems so hard to do that kind of stuff. Now it really does. It really does. Today's episode is brought to you by Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye. Bone familiar Rosie spends most of her days in the Bone Forest, hiding her powers to avoid conscription by the Witch King's army. But when she saves the life of Princess Shaw, she's offered the chance to attend the prestigious school Witch Hall. And at Witch Hall, Rosie finds herself embroiled in political games she doesn't understand. Shaw wants Rosie as a partner to help lead the coming war. Meanwhile, all Rosie wants is to stay out of trouble. But she can't really deny her attraction to Shaw. So the question is... Will Rosie give in to her destiny, or will the Bone Forest call her home once and for all? Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye is for all the magic school lovers. This immersive magic school is full of witches and familiars. It's also a queer normative fantasy world with a sapphic slow burn romance like we love. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of Anita De Monte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. So this is one of my most anticipated books of the year. It follows two women of color who are in the art world, but who also kind of sit outside of it because of a lack of privilege. So the story is told from both of their perspectives and it moves back and forth through time. So in 1985, Anita DeMonte is a rising star in the art world and she's found dead in New York City, right? And then in 1998, Raquel, a third year art history student, becomes involved with an older, more privileged art student and finds herself rising up the social ranks as a result. But then she also stumbles upon Anita's story and she sees parallels between Anita's story and her own. So Anita DeMonte Laughs Last is a propulsive, witty examination of power. Make sure to pick it up. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez for sponsoring this episode. Okay, um, let's talk recommendations. Unless there's something I'm missing. What else from the world of romance would pe- you think people would find interesting? Like, say, if that people were named Jeff and were talking to you right now that I may not know. Is there any... Are there any um, trends? Are there any questions? Any 
mini dramas that would be especially purient and voyeuristic to talk to? What's uh, what's what else? What do I even not know to even be interested in the world of romance now? Trisha, does anything come to mind? Gosh, I I mean I feel like um, we've we've done a pretty good overview. Mm-hmm. If people are interested, of course they can listen to Absolutely. the podcast. Absolutely, I think. I would say one of the more interesting things that has happened over the course of the last five years in romance is the fact that the institutions of romance have fallen apart a little bit. The RWA sort of fell fell apart. The um, uh, RT, which was uh, the Romantic Times, which was sort of the publication, didn't really fall apart, but the people who ran it got tired of it and retired. Mm -hmm. And um, so, but I think some of that is starting to come back a little bit. Uh, Jess, you went to the... um, the convention last year, and now I can't remember what it's Stimulate called. Stimulate Con. Stimulate Con. So we're yeah. starting to see like a, a reshuffling of what is the what are the institutions of of romance. That's the only thing that that jumps to my mind, Jess. I don't know about you. Um, we we've been talking about it sort of um around the edges, but I think one of the biggest changes is the actual explosion of the number of romance readers. Oh, we yeah. talk about how, yeah. you know, it, it, we don't know how many people were really reading romance <laughs> before 10 or 15 years ago because a, because it was something that you didn't talk about sort of like fan fiction. You didn't talk about being a fan fiction yeah. reader like you right. do now. Um, but also because people are talking about it in ways that we couldn't. Um, back then and now there are so many people reading romance that there are hundreds of pockets that that are so different that we can't really call romance readers one big category anymore yeah the the um, the person i spend my life with was one of those people trish was talking about during covid um, that picked up. I, I think I recommended to her Red, White, and Royal Blue. I said, I think you'll like mm-hmm. this. You'll get a kick out of this. You'll enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And she did. And then got into Allie Hazelwood and will read any Steminist romance novel that she of can course. get her hands on. They can't print them fast enough. Um, to get mm-hmm. out there. <laughs> and I don't think if you asked her, are you a romance reader? A, I'm not sure she would understand the question, honestly. Mm-hmm. And and then if she did understand, she's like, maybe, yeah, I like romances, I guess, even though when it's her leisure reading time, that would, produ- I mean, that's mostly what she reads, to be honest, when it's not work or nonfiction, when she turns to fiction, leisure reading, that's what she reads. So even the number of people reading romances is like decoupled from the number of people that call them romance readers, I guess, Jess, is that is that related to what you're maybe trying to think yeah. about? Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely what it is. Okay. All right, let's do recommendation time. So I'm going to open the floor. Things that you think people that generally like books would like or people that already like romance that maybe you just want to make sure they know about it. I'll cede the floor to however many titles you want to tell me about. Um, Trisha, do you have anything that you're like, you know what, if I don't say this right now, I'm going to feel like I've committed a crime against the podcasting world. I do. Okay. And the uh, the one that jumps to mind immediately, and I say this both as someone who is a huge Jessica Pride fan, but also as someone who literally today heard from a friend that this was an extraordinary book that changed the way they read. There's a book out there called Black Love Matters. It is. it is edited by Jessica P. Pride. It is P, right, Jess? 
Is that right? Yeah. I think yes. Um, it is a collection of essays about um, Black romance and the impact that it has had. And it is by an extraordinary group of writers. I cannot speak highly enough to the fact that if you are a person who, well, if you're a person who is skeptical of romance, I'm impressed that you got to this part in the podcast. But <laughs> good for you. Well done. Uh, before maybe you pick up a romance book, pick up this nonfiction book um, of essays about the impact of romance and what it is meant. Um, it's just, it is absolutely fantastic. Uh, so I will start there. I will also say the thing about romance, and this is something that um, Sarah Wendell, uh, who is of the 20 year old now, I think unbelievable. Um, website. Yep. Smart bitches, trashy books, who has been at the forefront of this, starting these conversations. She always talks about how, if there is a thing you want in romance, it probably right. is out there. And you know, your mileage may vary. People love Red, White, and Royal Blue. I couldn't read it because it is third person present tense, which just breaks my brain. <laughs> I can't do it. Okay. Like, it's just, <laughs> all right. so that's not for I me. See you. That's all right. It's fantastic, yeah. like to each their own. Yeah. Um, but I do think if you are, it is, if there is a amount of, you know, spiciness, steam, sex, whatever you're looking for, that is at a 10, you can find it. Mm. If it's at a zero, you can find it. Like all of that is out there. Um, if you are just trying to figure out who you are as a romance reader, I would recommend Indigo by Beverly Jenkins. We talked about that. It's historical fiction. It is fantastic. I genuinely believe they should teach it in schools. They probably won't in places like Florida. They might in places like Washington, where I live. We'll see. Um, <laughs> Role Playing by Kathy Yardley came out last year. It is about uh, characters who are roughly 50, who are still kind of figuring out who they are, but also dealing with the life challenges that you deal with in midlife um, I will also mention Boyfriend Material by Alexis uh, yeah. Hall, which is just a very fun rom-com that uh, it literally will make you laugh out loud, but it is also just a really fun, lovely romance. Um, those are a few off the top of my head, That's Jess. Amazing. I don't know about you. Jess, I want to hit you for love stories. You like a love story. I like a love story. Talk to me about some love stories. Um, well, I want to highlight the work of uh, author Diana Quincy, who is just a spectacular historical romance novelist. Um, her first book is Her Night with the Duke. I actually really love the second book in that mm. series. The, the Viscount made me do it. It, you know, it sounds very generic, but it is very different. Um, her, her books all include at least one, if not two, um, Middle Eastern characters. Um, and they, she, she is also one of those who has done the research to make sure that she is representing um, her heritage as it might have been seen in the Regency period, which is um, something that is so nice to see after reading hundreds <laughs> of Regency romances with not a mm -hmm. single person of color. Um, another book that I want to highlight um which is at the other end of almost every spectrum is uh, a love song for ricky wilde oh, by tia williams book coming out. i'm really uh, excited about jess i've got this on my radar so yeah. go tell me tell people about this book yes it's brand new it is um set in the it's set in the present day in february of 2024 it is a leap year and there is a lot that is that apparently happens when 
February has 29 days instead of 28. Ricky Wilde, the main character, is a great character to fall in love with. And the love story that builds out as she continues to encounter this mysterious gentleman. Uh, she first calls him Garden Gentleman because she runs into him in a community garden in the middle of the night. And they both were drawn by the scent of night blooming jasmine in February, which is not supposed to happen. Um, but they keep running into each other and he has a story that he has to tell. Um, and that that's all I'm going to say because really discovering uh, how the way that these two discover each other is all part of the reading experience. Um, I pause you right and there. I, I have just a want question for you about that book because yes. I, you're the perfect person to ask. So Rebecca and I were doing the It Books of February episode of the Book Ride podcast, and I picked that as mm -hmm. one of the candidates because I, I like um, I liked your earlier book, and I'm interested in this reading the blurb. And one thing I said during that show, and I don't know if you have in your mind's eye the packaging for that book. Was I supposed mm -hmm. to get that's a romance? Did I miss that? Because I, I was like, is this? Do I know that I'm going to get an HEA with the packaging of that book? It did cross my mind. I'm, I'm not sure that you you would okay. if you didn't know okay. that Tia Williams primarily, not always, but primarily writes romantic stories with happy okay. endings. Um, you know, a it's a hardcover. Yep. I'm pretty sure. Um, the cover is does not really convey that that it's a romance and that goes back to our discussion yeah. of you know what covers really do convey um so it's really like you have to know yeah. that that it is going in or you don't know until you finish it because my sense of her is like because it's packaged like it has a literary fiction upmarket hardcover kind of sensibility <laughs> and the description didn't tell me and so I was like, this is an interesting packaging choice because you can see a version of that that's an illustrated cover. And that's a that's a mm -hmm. mass market paperback. So I'd be curious to hear. That might be an interesting person to talk to, the designer of that book and what they were trying to do. That. All right. I, that was very specific, Jeff-focused content for me. Thank you so much, Jess. Uh, you were about to go somewhere else. Of course. Um, I, another author that I want to highlight is Angelina M. Lopez. Um, her uh, She's written a few books and she's she's on her second series and it's interesting because her first series was mass market mm. with um people like photographed people on the covers and her second series is trade paperback with painted covers and i'm curious what the difference is some people might think that um the first book in this series was her first book because they didn't know that she had the previous <laughs> series um, but she writes um, romantic melodrama. It's wonderful and delightful. And, you know, there's just that, just enough to make you smile that you're not just like in the doldrums until the happy ending. Um, but I, I think she really brings out a lot of um, what we don't see very much of, which is, um the the experience of not just um latina people in america but people of different um socioeconomic positions you know her first series is about these very wealthy people and this series is about a family who lived in kansas as descendants of people who lived in rail cars building the trains mm. or building the the railways 
um and you can just get like a whole experience of it, at least her very specific experience of living as a latina person in the united states um but she also has these devastatingly gorgeous love stories um some of them are a little more uh heartbreaking than others you know why can't we be together is the question that every romance asks and the the answer is not always the easiest to get through um but i think that she writes really great romances and she can put words together in an amazing way unbelievable i'll get you out on this last thing um are there any sort of blockbusters out there things coming out in 2024 that are especially anticipated um i know there's a new mcquist and i'm not sure where that is on the heat index these days of what people are looking for but anything else that comes to mind of what's going to be making headlines or hidden charts yeah it's funny that you ask because we did a uh most anticipated and now i can't remember anything well you know what that's a good that's a good segue (laughs) for me trisha because i can say i'll link to the one and when in romance in the show notes i'll find the episode i was looking at the topics you guys have talked about recently that i remembered seeing it um you guys are let's see what's your release schedule i'm looking now at the dates and i don't see it what how i know how often you guys come out what are your days we're yeah so we um if you're listening to this when it comes out we just released an episode on february 5th okay and we'll have another one coming out on 14 days later. Yeah. That's how they're doing every two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, I'll send you the link to that, Jeff. Cause I think um, one of the things that Jess and I try to do on those episodes is highlight books that maybe folks yeah. aren't seeing right. as much on, on book talk or, or bookstagram. Um, Jess, I don't know. I, I didn't mean to overstep you. I, you might've had something in mind for 2024 that I didn't think of. You know, the books that are on my much anticipated list don't tend to be the huge blockbusters like you're right that casey mcquiston is definitely highly anticipated by the people who have been reading red white and royal blue for the past four years (laughs) right and there's some people over and over red white and royal blue and 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 red white and royal blue this was so much fun i need to have some excuse that i don't have to wait 10 years to do a state of the union think about what we could talk about if there's an adaptation Maybe we a 10-year anniversary of a book. This was great. I enjoyed talking to you all so much. Thank you so much for joining me. Go check them out over there um, at One in Romance and Jess's book. And there's a link in the show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. You can shoot me an email, podcast at bookriot.com. First edition, by the time you're listening to this, there'll be a new episode out then. Trisha, Jess, thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. We'll have to do it again.